Why on earth can't we get the nation's transportation system repaired, rebuilt, and expanded? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. arguing over this issue for decades, but the nation's roads, bridges, and highways just keep deteriorating. Recently, we saw a glimmer of hope when President Obama signed the Fixing America's Surface Transportation, or FAST Act. It was the first federal law in more than a decade to provide a degree of long-term funding for infrastructure planning and investment. But we still haven't nailed down the key questions. What should be fixed first? Which projects should go forward? And which ones are old-style boondoggles? And, most importantly, how are we going to pay for all this? My guest today has some suggestions. She is Beth Osborne, Vice President for Technical Assistance with Transportation for America. Her resume includes a stint as Acting Assistant Secretary for Transportation Policy at the Department of Transportation in addition to overseeing DOT's Tiger Grant program for investing in infrastructure projects. Osborne will share with us a four-point action plan for the next President of the United States. And she'll explain why progress has been so slow on this issue to date. So here is my conversation with Beth Osborne. Beth Osborne, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So we're going to be talking about a problem that has been with us for many years, how to fix our transportation infrastructure and investment in it. And I believe that uh, you have a new plan that you've laid out under the uh, aegis of of Transportation for America. And I want to talk to you about the report that you've done and some of the conclusions. But I want to start, if possible, by just asking you what you feel is the reason why we have been at loggerheads. What's gone wrong up to this point? Yeah, it, why we've been at loggerheads, you mean in terms of uh, unable to, uh, to come up with more funding? And, yeah, uh, our our infrastructure is clearly crumbling. We know that. Uh, we're unable to get uh, to, to come to up to a political solution or an economic solution to come up with the money to fix it. Um, it seems to be just in a state of stasis in Congress. So how did we reach this state of affairs? It's, it's an excellent question that's hard to answer very quickly, honestly. Uh, in, in some ways, I would say we've actually had incredible levels of cooperation and agreement, especially compared to other areas. We have basically agreed over at least two reauthorizations, if not three, you could argue Safety Lou is included in this as well, to deficit spend on behalf of transportation, something that we can't seem to agree to do in any other area. There's been bipartisan and overwhelming bipartisan agreement to use gimmicks to keep the program alive. So in some ways, 
There's been incredible agreement. There just has not been consensus around putting vast amounts of new resources into the program. And why that might be, there's probably several reasons for that. One is after generation of two or two of convincing people that taxing people at any higher rate than they're being taxed now has sunk in. And that argument has been won. And therefore, you to pay more into this program, you either have to use gimmicks or new taxes. And new taxes are now completely against the rules and you can't get a majority vote on it anymore. So we're stuck. And so we have graciously agreed to gimmicks and bipartisanly agreed to gimmicks on an ongoing basis. Certainly a lot of short-term fixes, taking money from other sources just to plug a hole for another six months or so. Well, though, the last time, it's five years of gimmicks. So, I mean, we've, the FAST Act has five years worth of gimmicks and a massive amount of money being put into the the Highway Trust Fund in order to keep it afloat. Now, of course, we, it doesn't permanently fix the, the problem. Not that anything's really permanent, but it doesn't really fix it over the long term by coming up with the user fee. I'd say another big issue with the program is the trust fund itself. You know, the the trust fund is a huge advantage for those planning projects in this industry because you don't have to rely on annual appropriations, which makes other programs have to take a much more cautious approach to spending because they're not sure, they they can't encumber three years worth of, of spending at once. But But I would say really quickly that one of the bigger problems is we don't argue about this on an annual basis. There is no national debate. It doesn't show up in, in congressional campaigns. It doesn't show up in presidential races. And therefore, there's a huge disconnect between the policymakers, the staffers, and the public and this program. And then when you turn around after a massive disconnect that's lasted for at least 30 years and say, I'd like more money for this program you're unfamiliar with, that is a tough, uh, a tough pitch to make. Even though... Nothing is more visible to the public at large than our transportation infrastructure, but maybe it's hiding in plain sight. Maybe they just well, don't the, see it. The infrastructure know. is in plain sight. The program is not. Ask, ask the typical American how we pay for the program. Most probably don't know that it's a gas tax. They certainly don't know how much of a gas tax goes to the feds. They have no idea how it's distributed once it gets to the feds, and they don't know what they're going to get back for that investment. Let's start with the report that you prepared. How did you approach this report in order to prepare it? Who did you talk to, or did, was, did you come at it from a different standpoint than others have done up to this point? Well, I came at it based on, on my experience in the program and some of the, the oddities I've seen over my years. I have been at Transportation for America for two years, but before that, I was the Acting Assistant Secretary for Transportation Policy at USDOT. I ran the TIGER program there. Before that, I was Deputy Assistant Secretary. I helped to produce the administration's proposal for a transportation program and to implement the ones that were passed by Congress. So I've been involved in the program from many different angles. Before that, I was on Capitol Hill and worked on Safety Lou and worked on T21. So I've been watching this For years, I've been watching the number of of people who come to D.C. to really work in transportation on Capitol Hill dwindle. I didn't come to work on transportation, happened into transportation. And I have noticed that if you come to work on Capitol Hill or in in the administration, you kind of come here because you want to change the world. But if you're given a program that only comes up every six or so years, 
you're not going to gravitate to that issue. People who want to change the world don't say, I'll, I'll change the world in six years. I'll spend the next five years kind of twiddling my thumbs. So they, yeah. they end up working in other issues and they only take up transportation from time to time. Uh, it, typically, people only serve on Capitol Hill for two years at a time. So they're on their third job before transportation even hits. And that does not build up a great brain trust of people who really know the program and are energized to make it the best program it can be. There are a handful of people, but it's hard to sustain those people, even people like me on Capitol Hill. There's just not enough work for them. But by its very nature, transportation requires a long-term view. Projects take a long time to fund and complete, and you have to be able to look far in the future. So doesn't that require a multi-year program that's only going to be addressed every, as you say, every five or six years? Well, you could certainly argue that's the case, but this is one of the ramifications of that, is nobody in government understands the program when it comes up. And that's just something we need to understand. Not every nation has a multi-year program, and they, they build systems as well, so... I think it's just there are positives and negatives about each approach. And one of the negatives of this approach is that no one really understands the program, including the policymakers that legislate it. In other words, you think we should be revisiting this to keep it in the public profile on a more frequent basis, more in keeping with those two-year terms of Congress people? I mean, is that is that what you're suggesting? How would you address this problem of of, of out of sight, out of mind for five or six years? Well, I don't know if we really need to bring it up more regularly on Capitol Hill, but we do need to understand that the system that we've created does not encourage a deep understanding of the program. And so we may have to come up with other ways in the program to keep good oversight, to make sure we understand what the taxpayer is getting for their current investment to make up for it. So there are four principles that you lay out in this report in order to develop a future transportation program. I'd like to take them briefly one by one. Let's start out with what seems to be make eminent sense, and that is repair the current system first. Is that a consensus idea out there, or are you challenging conventional wisdom when you say that? I think that it is something we hear people say, but they don't want to hold the program to it, and they don't want to hold the state DOTs to it. If you actually try to push language that would require this, people will say, no, we need to give the discretion to the states. They know where the money is best spent. I think that that is often the case. But we need, as the stewards of the federal taxpayer's dollar, to be accountable for it. And after multiple rounds of saying we need to put money in this program to fix the system and it not being fixed very quickly, I mean, I will will point out that it has improved to some extent in terms of bridge repair and, and pavement condition. But as I point out in the report, one of the reasons it's not improving any faster than it is, is because we're also busy building massive new infrastructure. I give the example of Birmingham, where they're going to spend $5.4 billion on basically a, a, a bypass of Birmingham. This is not an area with extreme congestion. There's not much development north of the city, which this will most likely induce, which will come with it massive need for new infrastructure and expense. And at the same time, Alabama has hundreds of millions of dollars of repairs needs uh, on an annual basis. So there's a lot that we could do to make sure that more money is being spent to maintain what we have. We actually do that on the transit side, or at least to a better extent than we do it on the on the highway side, we say before you get to go build major new infrastructure, you have to show us that you can maintain what you have before you get to build the new thing. 
Yeah, but the problem has always been, has it not, from a political standpoint, that new projects make a much bigger splash for the Congress people in that district than a repair job. Boy, are you right about that. In fact, I'd take it another step. I would say that for elected officials, you get only grief for <laughs> fixing something up. I, I remember when I worked for Senator Carper from Delaware, he, he told the story of when he was governor of Delaware, they needed to do major work to I-95, you know, which is one of the most important arteries in our highway system nationwide. And he was told that he shouldn't do that during his reelection because it could cost him his reelection. Oh, my goodness. Because of traffic backups. Now, oh, right, right. Yeah. You know, and I, I understand that advice. He didn't listen to it, by the way. He built it anyway and or rebuilt it anyway. And he also was reelected. But the fact that that is a worry, the fact that a traffic inconvenience is such a major problem and you will be beaten up so roundly in the press for causing it is a major reason why it's more fun for folks to build new. And we wait until it's a disaster before we rebuild sometimes. Not only that, but over the years, the projects that tend to get funded are the ones that are supported by the most powerful legislators, whether they're the ones that should be built or not. Well, that has often been true. And you could argue that since th those legislators are the one raising the money for the program, maybe they should have some say in how the money gets allocated. But maybe there's a better way to do it than just to partially fund through annual earmarks little bits of, of projects that they favor. Because normally what happens then is the project doesn't get built. It just encumbers the money for a long time. The more recent proposals, though, have come up with structures by which projects are evaluated in a more sensible, from a more sensible fashion. That they're not, they don't rest entirely upon the power of the legislature, at least in theory. So I guess we're making some progress are, on that front, right? You see that in the Fast Act, where they have a lot more competitive programs. And one of the things that we look at, and I used to run the Tiger program, which is the most popular program at USDOT. One of the things you have to show is that for whatever funding you're given from Tiger, you can complete a project of independent utility. There's none of this, we're going to give you a million dollars this year and a million dollars next year, and in 20 years you'll have enough money to do something. It's, mm -hmm. I will give you a chunk of money right now, and when we're done with it, you are going to have a project that people can use. And that's what we're seeing more and more of. Now, in the FAST Act, they didn't really focus on the outcomes of the project. So, for example, their new freight program, which is a great idea, it is look at what is most necessary to improve freight movements as long as it's a highway. Yeah, well, let's get to that. Let's talk about how your, your proposal to abandon the so-called highways-only focus. What's wrong with that and what should we replace it with? Well, I think that responding with a tactic instead of a strategy is always a problem. For example, we don't see people in education say, we're going to improve math by making every child drill their multiplication tables. That's it. That's all we're going to do. And all the math scores are going to go up. No, we, we take a more comprehensive approach and say, we really should be doing the same thing in transportation. We should be saying, what are the problems with moving people and goods? And let's address the problem. So it's, what I always find interesting is we talk a lot. If you talk with the folks in the freight industry, they will talk about the enormous problem they have in first and last mile delivery. And then the solution they are given to first and last mile delivery program or problems is a bypass or a highway. Well, the point is they're having trouble once they get off the highway. That's the whole point. And if you're just 
you're basically offering them a bypass of their delivery point. They can't bypass the delivery. They actually do have to get off the highway at some point and travel on local roads and deliver a product. And we're so used to delivering one product, we can't respond to that need, which might be a local road need. It might be a rail spur to a port. It might be an inland waterway need. It might be uh, a, an airport need to move high-value goods. It might be a highway need. But there, there are many things, especially in moving freight, that should and can be explored to say that we're going to solve all problems with only one type of solution Well, it's really fated to not work very well, especially when you pair it with the language that looks at planning for freight. It's a a beautiful section of the law that talks about how to plan for freight. It talks about looking across all the modes and identifying the bottlenecks and looking for the most cost-effective ways to address those bottlenecks. And so you could do this beautiful, comprehensive approach and discover the thing you need most is to connect one of your major ports to rail. But then we can't fund it. Because that's not what we fund. Because it's not a highway. Uh, Does this also raise the problem of of competing priorities among commercial freight movement, passenger movement, and public transit? Are they all vying for the same dollars, and does that tend to sometimes shortchange the freight side of things? Yeah, that's a really good question, and I, I don't know that I have the best answer to it. But there's certainly something to the fact that the passenger traveler, the driver, the transit user has a louder voice in our system than freight. I will also say that in terms of freight movements, the the freight logistics industry is so sophisticated, they will change the way freight moves 10 times before we actually build a project. So to some extent, the notion that we're going to fix freight problems only with capital solutions really shows a lack of understanding of freight movements. One of the things that we do in our technical assistance when we're talking to state DOTs about designing in a multimodal manner, on the freight side, the first piece of advice we give is don't assume you know what the freight industry needs. Invite them in the room and ask them. They will surprise you. What they need and what you think they need are often very, very different things. And, of course, you're, you're actually supporting innovation along the lines of the Tiger Grant program that you oversaw before. You would like to see that continue? You think that was a success? Yes. I think it was limited in its success because it is such a small program. You know, we have a $60 billion nationwide program of which $500 million is the Tiger program. And so that is a very limited program, especially when you're talking about doing something on a nationwide basis. On the other hand, with this itty-bitty tiny pot of money compared to what we spend in transportation nationwide, we have, they have, I'm not part of we anymore, I keep forgetting. (laughs) They have done some pretty incredible and transformative things. There is a a project that was funded, I believe, in the fifth round of Tiger, it might have been the fourth. In Rochester, New York, there was a highway that was called the Interloop. It was uh, basically a 10 to 12 lane trench that went through the center of Rochester and divided the community in two. It only supported 6,000 vehicles a day. And most people might not realize 6,000 vehicles a day, there are local roads in a lot of cities that handle more than 6,000 vehicles a day. So it was 10 to 12 empty lanes. And if you looked at this interstate, you would see a big empty road in the middle of the day. And with the regular program, they could never seem to get this dealt with. But 
through Tiger, which was outside of the normal way of doing things and encouraged innovation, they were able to get all of the stakeholders to agree to fill it in and turn it into an urban boulevard. And they are in the midst, I've seen pictures of it filled in. They are building the urban boulevard now. They're going to reclaim a lot of that property for development instead of sitting empty and requiring a, a lot of investment in maintenance it's going to be generating tax revenues going forward. It's going to reconnect this community. There's some really incredible things that this program has done. And what's so fabulous about it is it gets transportation agencies to think about doing things that are different than what they would do with their regularly scheduled funding. We're going to be running out of time pretty quickly. And like everyone else on this debate, we've left the best for last. And that is the issue of how to pay for this. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me your idea on how we can fund all these projects going forward over multiple years. You'll you'll notice in the report, I mentioned funding last. And that was not an accident. What I really wanted to come across, you have to read 35 pages of things that the program needs to do before I touch the issue of funding. And that is because we're not using the funding we have now very effectively. If the state of Alabama has $5.4 billion to spend on a bypass through an area that's completely undeveloped, which is a project that was rated something like 30th out of 35 for the region, and the other 29 could be done for less than a billion, they don't have a funding problem. That is not a funding problem. That is a prioritization problem. And so I would like to emphasize again that if we would spend our money more effectively, we might not have quite the funding problem we claim that we have. In terms of funding the program, there is no painless way to do it. Someone will have to pay in more for us to have more money. And I know that in this country that has become a very strange notion to people that the tooth fairy will not pay our way. But the tooth fairy will not pay our way. So we can raise the gas tax. And will that work forever? No, but it will work for a good long while. We can switch to a vehicle miles traveled tax. We can look at things like congestion pricing, which have been not only effective at raising money, but at getting more usage out of what we've already built. So instead of just building, trying to build our way out of the, pro- uh, out of the problem, We've seen states like Minnesota move more people through what we've already built using congestion pricing. So that is, that's a two-four. Not only are you bringing in more money, you're getting more use out of what we've already built. Should we dump the trust fund and just pay out of general treasury dollars? I don't think that that is necessary. There, like I said earlier, there are certainly countries in the world that don't operate with a trust fund and are able to do their job and are able to keep their system in a better state of repair than we are. I will say this. It is not the panacea that people promised it would be to have a trust fund. It did not fix all of our problems. We do not have a ton of infrastructure in gleamingly beautiful condition. So I, but I don't, I don't think getting rid of it is necessarily the solution either. The policies that underpin however we pay for this program have to improve. There has to be more focus on forcing a greater usage out of what we have already built, out of maintaining what we have before we build more. One thing we didn't mention earlier is there needs to be a lot more involvement from local governments 
because so many of our problems are not transportation problems, they're development problems. When you develop housing very far from jobs and very far from schools and very far from groceries, and they're all far from each other, you have set up a system whereby congestion is inevitable. And if you try to fix it by transportation investments, you will never get there and you will spend a fortune trying to do it. So forcing the transportation planning and the development planning to come closer together is extremely important, but that can't happen at the state level because the state is not in charge of development policy, locals are. So we need to figure out a way to break down that silo as well. There's a lot that we can do to make this system work a lot better than it does without spending more money. And maybe if we spend a little more time thinking about that, people will be more interested in opening up their pocketbooks to the program. Okay, the report is called New Principles for Our Transportation Program. It was published by the Century Foundation's Bernard L. Schwartz Rediscovering Government Initiative. Author Beth Osborne of Transportation for America. Beth, I want to thank you so much for talking to us today about this critical issue. I will link to that report in the show notes so that our listeners can get more information, and they're definitely going to need it. 25 minutes doesn't do the trick. <laughs> but uh, thanks, thanks very much for spending time with us. Oh, thank, thank you. you. That was my conversation with Beth Osborne of Transportation for America, offering a new plan for fixing the nation's transportation system. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time. <laughs>